in high school, like as a track event, besides me? Just me? Yeah. So if you did run it or you ran it regularly, you know this experience. The, the mile is a four-lap race. And two laps are particularly brutal, the last two. And depending on who you are, either the third or the fourth one's the worst. Um, the third one for me was purgatory. I don't believe purgatory exists, but if it did, it would be the third lap of the mile. Um, you're halfway done, but you're not close to the finish line. Like, I, I could be winning the race, and I would want to quit during the third lap. Dead serious. I could be at a great meet with full of stud athletes and be winning and want to quit on the third lap. Like, seriously, talking myself out of it. Fourth lap, see the end, kick hard, finish well. We're in the fourth lap of the race right now, the semester. We're in the fourth lap of the year. It's great. And I, I'm kicking to the end. I love it. Last eight weeks, a little harder is the third lap for me. Some of you are kicking to the end, and some of you, you're the other people. The fourth lap's the hardest. You're struggling. Or you think you're going to struggle. And all I want to tell you is if that's you and you're struggling or you're about to struggle, don't do it by yourself. All right? Tell us. Let me know. I, I told some freshmen the other day, sometimes we have to pull each other to the finish line. And that's okay. And if you feel like that's going to be you falling on your face, about to quit at the end, don't do it by yourself. Come and let us know. Let me know. Love to talk with you. All right. We, uh, before we took a break for the spring break, we had been working through Romans. And over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the new community that we have with one another. That Jesus is making all things new, and that includes making a new people, a new community marked by love. And we spent a lot of time in Romans 12. And in Romans 12, Paul is telling us how to love God, how to rightly view ourselves, and how to love others, including even how to love our enemies. And he picks up with that theme here in chapter 13, verse 8. He talks about the law. What we owe one another is love. We should be marked by love. However, chapter 13 doesn't begin with that. Chapter 13 begins instead with this text on the importance of submission. It's about submission in powers, in authorities, in government. What's that got to do with love? What's it really got to do with love? And what role does it have in our lives? That's what Paul is uh, confronting us with today. That's what we're going to wrestle with. So we're in Romans 13. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 10. Feel free to follow along in your Bible or up there. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God's appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what's owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. All right, if you would, pray with me. Lord, I thank you that you've brought us back. Thank you that you brought these people here. I pray now that you'd be gracious to show us great things in your word. Show us yourself and grant us faith to trust you. Pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, Pittsburgh's become a place where people come to make movies. You may have realized that. And uh, one of my favorite movies that's been filmed here is also one of the, I think, one of the least appreciated good films the last three or four years. And that's the movie Warrior. And it's not just because I'm a meathead that loves action flicks. It really is just a great movie. Yeah, I see some people celebrating the movie. Uh, it's really a good movie. And uh, I'm using this illustration for its graphic power uh, and not just uh, for the fact that it's a good movie. Uh, the movie is about uh, MMA fighting, wrestling. And it's ultimately about a family and one person in particular named Brendan. Brendan is a physics teacher who's had to get back into the sport in order to save his home. They're so far behind on bills that they're going to lose their house. They're going to be evicted. So um, in, in one particular match, and, and Brendan's not like a pushover, but he's way overmatched, especially in this match. He's fighting the great Koba, who, like all Russian villains, is like bald and mean and impossible. Like This is the way it always seems to be with Russian villains. And uh, he's never lost a match in his whole life, and he destroys people. And uh, after getting destroyed for a couple of rounds, Brendan puts Koba in a submission move. A submission move, like all submission moves, are meant either to make you pass out or to cause you so much torture that you tap out, which is you give up, you submit. To tap out is to say, I quit. And um, as, as Brendan is uh, putting this submission move on Koba, his coach to the side is yelling over and over, break it, break it. Break it. Now, this is striking for a couple of reasons. His coach is so super cool and laid back that he acts as, he usually trains his fighters listening to classical music. Brendan enters the arena to Beethoven. And so his coach is screaming, Break it, break it, break it, meaning break his leg if necessary, because that's what it would take for this guy to submit. Now, as a guy that's into sports and has watched wrestling, that was striking even to me that the coach would say, you might have to break his leg and be willing to do it. And I use that as an example because that is how much some people hate to submit. Like most people at that point would be like, I quit. Like you just get me near submission. Like I'm done. I'm not even getting in the ring with you. This guy is not going to submit unless you break his leg or come very close. And that's how much we hate to submit. We really do. How many of you like the word submit? Show of hands, one of you. How many of you like the word authority? Do I get it? I got like half. Yeah, you put the two together. How many of you like to submit to authority? Yes, that's right. And, and Paul here is saying not only should we submit to the authorities that are in place, we actually need in Christianity to expand that idea. That we're called to embrace submission as a way of life. That really to love others well involves necessarily a submission. And uh, Paul is calling us in this new way of life, of love, to submit. To embrace submission as a way of life. Not to be a walking mat, not to, uh, not to become utterly nothings, to 
to die to your own personality completely. But we're to embrace a mission in a way that's really personally difficult for us. And we're going to talk about that uh, tonight by talking about the way of power and the way of love. Okay? The way of power and the way of love. And and the way of power, Paul describes in in verses 1 through 7. And he starts by just talking about all the authorities. In verse 1, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And what he's saying here is that all the authorities that exist, all of them, all the governmental authorities, political authorities, parental authorities, they're all there because God put them there. All authorities are given by God. The text says, just in case you want to get out of it, without exception, every single one of them, without exception, they are there. Because God put them there, as hard as it might be for us to believe. And uh, it, what's happening here is God has decided, in His great authority as a great king, to exercise His authority in a derivative way. This is what happens when you're in charge. You, you delegate authority. And God has delegated authority to all kinds of people all over the world. To parents, to the government, to the world, to university administrators, you name it. He's given it out that he might rule the world justly through people. Uh, this, you see this really come out uh, in this conversation. It's really a fascinating conversation that Jesus has with Pilate before Jesus' death. Jesus is heading to the cross, and he's meeting with Pilate, who's the most important political figure in the area, and Pilate is cross-examining him, and Jesus is saying nothing, literally nothing, to defend himself. And Pilate asks him this very simple question. Don't you know I have the authority of life and death over you? And Jesus' response is very simple, non-confrontational, just says, you wouldn't have any authority at all if God hadn't given it to you. That's his honest answer. It's a little gutsy. Um, But it's true. And and that's what Paul is saying here, too. That whether it's Herod, who tried to kill Jesus as a baby, or Pilate, who out of cowardice... And envy, or the Jewish authorities who out of envy offered up Jesus to die even though he was righteous, or Claudius, or Caligula, or Nero, some of these Roman Roman, uh, emperors of the time of Jesus and Paul, who uh, were unjust and even fashioned themselves to be deities and accepted the worship of the people. Whatever the case might be, and Paul knew this stuff was going on. In fact, he had petitioned to go see Caesar. Paul is saying, you should submit to them. Because God put them there. They're His appointed authorities. Why would Paul say this? Well, for two reasons. One, it's true. I mean, Paul believes it's true anyway. And secondly, because Paul believes it's good. That these people, these authorities, are in place for our good. And verses 3 and 4 make that clear. That these rulers are not a terror to those who behave, but they are meant to work for our good if we obey. That uh, they bear the sword, they bear the right to punish wrong conduct, and they're supposed to promote the good. The, the fear part we get, I think we naturally get this. Uh, driving to Nashville and back, I drove the whole way and back because I was the only one old enough to do it. And, um, you know, I don't think I was afraid of anything the whole week, except, I mean, the whole week I wasn't really afraid of anything, except police as I drive. And I didn't, like, drive in utter terror, but if I saw a cop in the median, what did I do? I slowed down. Like, instinctively, I had to slow down. Why? Because I don't want to get a ticket, because I've gotten lots of tickets in the past. I don't like them. Um, 
You know, my, my nine-year-old niece knows this. Uh, a couple of years ago, my sister was driving somewhere with my mother, and they were talking, and they saw a cop. My sister was like, oh, no. My little niece is like, what happened? What happened? And Andrew explained, please, I think I'm going to get a ticket. And eventually it became clear the cop wasn't going to follow them. And my sister went on with her conversation with my mom, and they just sort of forgot about Kaylee. But after 30 minutes, Kaylee stands up. She'd been laying down in the floor of the car and says, whew, that was close. <laughs> Natural fear of authority. Like, we don't want to be punished, right? Um, we just sort of get that. It's sort of bred into us. And, and Paul says, you know, maybe not the fear, but in some ways this is good. This is what keeps society orderly and just. Uh, Paul in chapter 12 says, hey, if you have enemies, don't plot revenge yourself. Leave it to God's judgment. Leave it to God's wrath. And here in this text, what we see is one of the means by which God exercises His wrath on evil is the authorities. It's their job to bring justice, and it's God's job to bring justice. It's your job to love. Well, um, the upshot of all this is that God has given these authorities for our good, and we must submit. And there are no exceptions. Let every person be subject. So unless you're per, not a person, you really are included here. I don't, can't really think how many of you could possibly be excluded. And I, again, this is Paul writing, who's suffered unjustly at the hands of Jewish authorities, who suffered uh, unjustly at the hands of Greek authorities, who will be treated unjustly at the hands of Roman authorities. Uh, everywhere he goes, he's treated unjustly. And yet, he says, because it's true, because it's for the public good, we should submit to the authorities. Well, but how do we do so? And uh, the text gives us some clear guidelines here. We're to pay our taxes. If you made money this year, even if you made it under the table, you should like figure out whether or not you actually owe the government some taxes and pay it. I did it just recently. It was so much fun. You really should. You're supposed to do this. Um, you should honor the authorities. You should respect them. You shouldn't uh, deride them or insult them. Uh, talk about them behind their backs. In other words, you should treat them like real human beings. Um, you should vote. You can volunteer. Uh, but that's the one-on-one level of sort of civic involvement. Uh, the next level, and Christianity almost never just lets you get by with one-on-one levels. The next level is sort of brought to the forefront in verse 5, where, where Paul says, one must be in subjection, not just to avoid God's wrath. In other words, don't obey or don't respect just to not get in trouble. If fear of punishment is your only motive, you're missing something. And he goes on to say, in verse 5, but also for the sake of conscience. It's not quite clear what Paul's saying, but what I think he's saying is we should actually obey the authorities because as God's given servants, this is a God-oriented thing. When you bring conscience into it, you're bringing your relationship with God into the thing, into the relationship. In other words, my relationship with the authorities is not... God's a variable there. It's not abstracted from Him. Uh, which means that there may be all kinds of silly rules and laws that you would like to ignore, that you don't think the Scriptures demand in any way, and you think you have the right to ignore. But because God's appointed those authorities... You should probably obey them. We really don't like these. Again, uh, 
One of the reasons we really, really don't like authorities deep down is because, one, we're populist. We think we all are egalitarian. We all have the right to do whatever we want. Uh, Two, some of us have been abused by authority, whether it's political or familial or even church authority um, or even maybe the school's authority. We've been abused, and so we're really distrustful. But deep down, a lot of us don't like authority because we have a song in our hearts that we all sing, and we all really believe it. And the song goes like this. You can tell everybody. You can tell everybody. Go ahead and tell everybody that I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I mean, deep down, we think we're the man. And if someone's not going to enforce the rules and show me that they're the man, then I have the right to do what I want. And, uh, you know, there, there's some rules and some things in this world that just really drive me crazy. I saw it today. I almost took a picture. It's the Pittsburgh Parking Association Authority. Yeah, the word authority is even in there. Pittsburgh Parking Authority drives me crazy. I get tickets for parking in front of my own house. I think that's absurd. I think it's absolutely absurd. I get par- ticketed for parking in front of my own house. But um, you have some rules, but, but I, if I get it, I don't fight it. I just sort of stew in it. Say, next month I have to remember to move my car. There are some rules that you, and some authorities you really have to obey that you don't think you should have to or want to. And I'll give you two. And here I really am profiling your college students. So if I was preaching this message somewhere else, it would be different. I'd talk about taxes or something else. But as college students, two things come to mind. Two authorities that students often ignore. One, your professors. Tend to approach your professors as though they're a product and you're the consumer. You know, take what's good, spell out the bad. But really, it's their class, their expertise. You signed up for it. So, you should go. You should go to class. You should try to get there on time. You should try to listen. You should try to be respectful. You try not to complain too much when the test is hard. If the test is unfair, that's one thing. Go talk to them. But don't talk about them behind their back. Um, some of you have heard me talk about my college experience, and so you're saying, Derek, you're a huge hypocrite. Uh, I tell you those stories, and every time I tell you those stories, I tell you, I was a terrible student. Like, I was a terrible student. I was a poor student, poor steward of my college education. I was wrong. Don't use my experience as a justification for you doing the same stupid things I did. So you should respect your professors. As unpopular as that is, the second one's going to be even more unpopular. <laughs> this is going to be really fun. Let's talk about alcohol. Now, I don't exactly know who decided that 21 was the right age. I think it's a bit silly. I didn't say that as someone that drank a lot in college. Uh, I say that as someone that drinks now. I didn't drink in college. Uh, But I think it's really a strange, arbitrary age. I really do. And if you think it's an arbitrary age and you really don't like it, then I would suggest you leverage the ability and authority you have to try and change it. You're free to do that. I'm dead serious. But the law is that you're not supposed to drink until you're 21. And the problem here is not alcohol. It really isn't. The problem here, I mean, it can be. If you abuse it, it's wrong, no matter how old you are. Uh, But the problem here is not alcohol if you're under 21. The problem is the law. And if what Paul says is true, and I believe it is, that you're to obey for the sake of conscience, that means it's actually God's will that that law exists. And you should take it seriously. I know that's a massively unpopular idea. I really do. I understand. We can talk about it. Um... But, you know, Paul and Jesus had to do all kinds of 
things for the sake of conscience. And we do too. All right, well, at this point, what you want to say is, like, how do I change the broken system? I hate these rules, I hate these laws, I don't like this government. How do I change it? And frankly, you're fortunate you live in a culture and society where you can actually do some of those things, so go do those things. Outside of that, Paul goes in a completely different direction. Paul's saying, let's not talk about the way of power anymore, let's talk about the way of love. He's offering us a different way, perhaps even a better way. And we're going to do this pretty quickly. What we see here with the way of love is God's greater reign. Can't fold paper. Take a break, can't fold paper. Uh, God's greater reign. And greater in a couple different ways. One is greater in the sense of scope. God's reign is so great that it encompasses all the authorities. In verses 1 and 2, which we just read, Paul says every authority on earth is being given by God. Meaning, all those authorities are subject to Him. They're all accountable to Him. They will all come to a day of judgment. Uh, whether that's pastors, is this terrible but wonderful warning in one of Paul's letters to someone else. That, you, know, you shouldn't really want to be a teacher unless you are being judged uh, because you're held to a high standard of, of, of judgment. Um, so all authorities will be held to a high standard of judgment. And uh, part of our responsibility as Christians in the church is to occasionally tell our public leaders, I appreciate what you're doing. That's great. Uh, just remember where you got your authority from. And... Uh, for your own good, um, seek justice and promote good and fight evil because you have to answer for this at some point. And don't say that in some kind of snide way, but really, truly, because it's a power and an authority, a gift given to them for the good that's entrusted by God, the great king. So um, it's greater in scope. God's greater kingdom rules over all these powers. And it's greater in priority as well. Ultimately, all the authorities and us, as well as individuals, we answer to God first. So there does come a time in which we may have to say to the authorities around us, I'm sorry, I can't obey that. There are numerous examples in Scripture, in the Bible, of when this happens. One of the first ones is in Exodus, when uh, an unjust ruler named Pharaoh tells the Hebrews that they have to throw all their infant boys into the river. And when they refuse, they basically tell all the, all the midwives, if you will, all the nurses of the day, you have to throw all the baby boys into the river. And they refuse. They refuse to do it. It's an act of civil disobedience. If you will, it's the first act of civil disobedience in the Bible. And there are many more. So there may be occasions in which the authorities tell you to do something that you cannot do. The scripture forbids you to do. And then you just don't do it. And it may also be the case that, this, that the government or the authorities may forbid you to do something that you should do. Um, so, an, an instance of this is in the book of Acts. Uh, one of the things that Christians should do, we should tell people about our faith. We should do so winsomely, respectfully of the individual. We shouldn't shove it down people's throat. But in, in general, we should, if we have good news, we should be willing to share it with others. In Acts chapter 5, 4 and 5, uh, the Jewish authorities come to the disciples and say, Enough with this. Shut it. You can't do this anymore. Stop telling people about this. And... Uh, these guys facing persecution say, sorry, I really wish I could help you, uh, but should we listen to God or to men? In other words, who's the ultimate authority in this matter? And it's God. We, our ultimate priority is to God. So we should seek to obey the laws of the land until they cross God's priorities. And then we have to have the courage to do what's right. Because He has the greater reign. Uh, God's greater reign is marked, this is awesome, by a greater law. And you see it in verses 8 through 10. 
worth reading again. Owe no one anything except to love each other. The one who loves one another is fulfilled the law. And he goes on in verse 9 and sort of says, you know, love is marked by fidelity, um, not murdering one another, loving each other, not stealing, not coveting. Uh, we should love our neighbors like ourselves. In other words, the functional law of God's kingdom is love God, love neighbor. That is much harder, much, much harder than pay your taxes, honor and respect the authorities. It really is. It's much more demanding and it's much harder. Um, But it's also much more beautiful. And it's ultimately what this world needs. Uh, I am not uh, apolitical. I believe government, like this text says, is basically good. It can be abused. It often is, like everything in this world. But if your hope ultimately for this country or this world is political, good luck. I mean, good luck, really. I, I believe government has the power to make things better, to address injustice, and to bring peace at times. At times. For a time. But it does not change hearts. And it does not ultimately change cultures. And what does is the power of the gospel working away across culture, across country. And so what we have here is a greater kingdom, greater in scope, every tribe, tongue, nation, language, multiple thousands of years old, marked by love. It's a beautiful thing. And, uh, and, it, and it draws people in. Uh, I'm going to share a little illustration from this book uh, called Tales of the Kingdom. This was a gift. It's a really nice one, too. And um, this is called The Orphan Keeper's Assistant. The Orphan Keeper serves a ruling authority known as the Enchanter. This is a fiction, fairy tale kind of book, if you haven't caught on. And um, this Orphan Keeper Assistant, her job for the Enchanter is to track down runaway orphans. And in particular here, she's seeking a boy whose name is Scarface. Not very good. Uh, But he's been taken in by this woman named Mercy, who's a a caretaker. She loves all kinds of people. And she's renamed him Hero. And Mercy and the Orphan Keeper's assistant have just had a a battle of wills over who's going to have this boy. And the Orphan Keeper assistant has lost. She's lost the battle of wills. Okay, And we're going to pick up the story right there. The orphan keeper's assistant put her hands in her face and wept. She wailed something pitiful. She blubbered, she hollered, she pulled a handkerchief from her basket, she wiped her face. And then a little hand patted her arm and touched her shoulder and wiped tears from her cheeks and then her eyes. It was one of the blind girls, the child, smelling of lavender and soap, pressed her cheek against the cheek of the orphan keeper's assistant. Opening her eyes, the young woman discovered that she was surrounded by children. The boy in the wheelchair offered a cool cloth, damp and fragrant, and pressed it against her forehead. The child on crutches had poured a drink and held it out to her. One of them said, Don't cry, orphan keeper's assistant. Don't cry. But she cried all the more. Who had ever spoken kindly to her? Her father had died in the bellow works beneath the city, and her mother had been an outcast. Then the two boys standing near the corner came forward. The older spoke to Mercy. I'll go back with her. My little brother can stay with you. Getting fired is terrible. She shouldn't be fired because of me. 
the orphan keeper's assistant wailed again. She remembered being branded. She remembered the pain of her hand. She was only the orphan keeper's assistant because she served the orphan keeper and the enchanter without any questions. Not because they cared for her. She had no friends. But Mercy had said, everyone here belongs to someone else. The children patted her hand. Mercy cleared her throat and said, I think I have a happy ending. Why doesn't she stay? That way, Hero won't have to go back, and she won't have to be fired. The children danced and jumped. Yes, stay. Stay, Orphan Keeper's assistant. Stay with us. Please, please. We want you to stay. The Orphan Keeper's assistant blew her nose. She sniffled and snuffled. She looked at Mercy. The young woman's eyes were full of wonder. You want me? Yeah, so this is a beautiful picture of the nature of the kingdom of love. Marked by love, it opens its doors to anyone. and has the power to change anyone's life. And marked by love, it has the power to breed and bring out a loyalty from within us. It's unlike any other. This is the hope, the healing balm that the world needs. It really is. And we, we get this. We get this, this new rule, this new law, this greater reign, lastly, because of God's own submission. Um, we naturally, actually, we just can't help but think this. We think that the way the work, world works is the most powerful thing will ultimately win. And what happens here with this kingdom is that the victory of God's kingdom is won, this is another theologian speaking, not, not by the means of this world, not by politics, not by power, um, not by revolution, that it's won by submission, by God's own submission. You do know, of course, that God submitted, right? That God, the ultimate superpower, submitted. I mean, that's what Scripture is about. That's what the Gospel is. That Jesus, being the Son of God, submitted to be born, to, to reside in the, in the body of a Jewish teenager. God allowed himself to be born from the birth canal of a Jewish teenager. It's crazy. He allowed himself to be born in a stable. And to live in a backwoods town in the middle of nowhere. He allowed himself to be submitted, to submit himself to the Jewish law, circumcised on the eighth day. The God of the universe submitted himself to his parents. Every day. All the time. The God of the universe submitted himself to pagan Roman rule, corrupt temple authorities, even when they handed him over to Pilate. He submitted himself to the Roman authorities, even when out of cowardice, they handed him over to the cross. The author of life submitted himself to death on a cross. Jesus submitted himself over and over and over. And the question is why? Why? Why would he do that? And the answer, the simple answer is love. It's love. The simple answer. The fuller answer is because he loved his people so much. He loved his people so much that he gladly, willingly submitted to fully answer God's wrath. To pay what we owe. Right now, we only, if we're in Jesus, owe love. We only owe love as the right response to what Jesus did for us. Before we trusted in Jesus, we owed God everything. We owed Him perfect obedience. Instead, we gave Him rebellion and an I'm the man kind of attitude. That's what we gave God. 
And in his wrath, he had every right to give us what we deserved. And instead, Jesus submitted himself over and over and over. And he paid what we owed because he loved us. He submitted himself for us. And in response to that, we should really be fundamentally changed. The kind of people that would say, if God would submit to death for me, I can submit to him. And I can submit to others. I I really can. You really can. Pretty much out of time, but this illustration is so good, I have to do it. Um, so, and it's also dangerous because the end of this movie is like the ultimate male tearjerker. It's like perfectly calculated to make men cry. Women would probably watch it and be like, what the? But guys, it's like a kryptonite. I'm sorry. I dare you to watch it and not cry. Um, so, in, in the final match of the movie, Brendan is facing Tommy. Tommy is a. Uh, He's a wrecking ball of fury. There's really no better way to put it. Uh, Tommy is broken and angry, and in his previous matches, he's completely destroyed his competition. He seems to have no rules or, or respect for the authorities. And in fact, in his match with Brendan twice, he, he punches after the bell, like deliberately trying to inflict harm, but he's not supposed to. These are huge no-nos. Uh, adding to the suspense is the reality that Tommy and Brendan are brothers, uh, long-lost brothers, that uh, Tommy and Brendan had grown up in a broken home. And when they were teenagers, Brendan moved away with his mother and left Tommy with his alcoholic, abusive dad. So Brendan sort of grew up okay, and Tommy grew up broken and angry. And, uh, and he's not right. And he takes out all his fury and all his matches. And in this match, he takes it out on his brother. And he beats him mercilessly for three rounds. Until at the end of the third round, like Brendan always seems to do, he pulls this miraculous stunt where he uh, basically has Tommy in a submission hold. He has all his and Tommy's collective weight on one of Tommy's shoulders. And pretty much any other person would tap, would submit, but Tommy doesn't. And so we hear his shoulders separate. We hear the tendon snap. Yeah, and we see, we see Brendan, the older brother, actually being concerned for his brother has been beating him senseless for three matches. And we hear uh, Tommy's sort of primal scream of fury. And then you know what happens? Tommy refuses to submit. He goes on fighting. He refuses. He will not submit. He, he, can't, he has no chance of winning. Uh, he, he has no power. But he, he can't quit. And so Brendan does the only thing he can do, which is he has to make his brother submit. And so he puts him in another submission hold, and he's pleading with his brother. He's pleading with him, trying to reassure him. Submit, Tommy. Submit. It'll be okay. It doesn't work. I'm sorry, Tommy. That doesn't work either. And lastly, I love you. I love you, Tommy. And his brother taps out. It's amazing. You should watch it. You'll all cry. We should watch it together. Um, <laughs> and the national is playing in the background. Oh, yeah. It's like, it's, it's the worst ever. It's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's great. It really is. And, and it's true. It's true. That's the other thing. It's true. Um, sorrow won't do it. Pleading won't do it. But when someone greater than you that loves you enters your life and tells you they love you, you will submit. And that's what God has done for us in the person of Jesus. Our greater brother, God himself, in the flesh has come. 
and paid all of our price, paid all of our debt, and he's telling us, I love you. I love you. You you can quit being in control. You can quit. It'll free you up, friends, not just to honor the authorities. It'll free you up to submit to each other, to love each other, to serve each other from the heart. Okay, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this evening.